week in Oakland and that delayed the shipment of an espresso machine valve to the millennium. I'm really... Oh, jeez, look at your pants, too. I'm sorry. The silent, five-second-long vibrating alert on the tiny device in George's pocket has given way to the up-and-down do-re-mi-fa-mi-re-do chromatic tweet of the audible alert. His wife, Lizzie, has said it sounded like reveille for pixies, and his stepdaughter, Sarah, had asked him if he cares if it makes strangers think he's gay. But George has stuck with the little tune, rather than any standard beep choice, because it subverts the display of self-importance, he hopes, of getting a cell phone call on the sidewalk, in an elevator, at a restaurant table. It has finally become possible, for about three years now, to carry on a phone conversation walking down the street and not look like an asshole. My phone, George says to the messenger with a lame, bashful smile, and starts to move away. Hello? George? Honey? Yeah? He hears nothing. Lizzie? Nothing. Hello? He punches end. He will wait for her to call back. The phone jiggles. Yes, he says, joshingly. Oh, George. What is it? Your mother died last night. Oh. He feels like he's been shot in the face at close range, with blanks, but still loud and sickening. Oh, Christ. I'm so sorry, darling. How? I, I mean... Silence. Honey? She told me a couple of weeks ago her doctor said she probably has years. It wasn't her kidney. She was in a car accident, George. She was driving home on the interstate from her line-dancing class, and she slowed way down for some animal, a weasel, and a giant semi rammed into her. Your sister says she, you know, she didn't... It all happened so fast. She died instantly. George watches the messenger he victimized pedal west toward Times Square. So, Lizzie says, I'll go home and pack. You don't have to. We can fly out in the morning. Why not tonight? We're presenting the shows to Moe's this afternoon at 5.30, which means I'm out of here at 6.30, at the earliest. This is the meeting, Lizzie. I guess we could try to reschedule, but Emily's flying in from L.A. for it, and she needs to be in Washington at some Kennedy Center Al Gore thing tomorrow. He knows he's babbling. But I guess if we could maybe get into Moe's tomorrow... No, shit, tomorrow is... He's... Moe's and the rest of them are going... Are in Washington State? Maybe Vancouver. Someplace out there, I'm not sure. For something. He coughs. So lame. I think I really ought to be here this afternoon. His mother was killed hours earlier. He and his partner are to have an audience with the chairman of the network to pitch two new shows. Now he's concealing a business secret, probably not worth concealing from his wife, and doing it clumsily. He isn't even sure exactly what he's dissembling about. He'd only heard snippets, glancing references, roundabout allusions, all equally plausible and implausible, all equally reliable and unreliable. Asian video game programming? An agreement to earmark NBC's extra-digital channels for data transmission in return for putting the network's 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. home shopping show booty on Microsoft's web TV? Some grander plot to ally with Microsoft against Intel?
or to make life a little unpleasant for NBC vis-a-vis -vis MSNBC? Computers and the Internet, so radiant with revolutionary promise and terror, change everyone's business strategy every other month, so the gossip changes every week to keep up. All he knows definitely is that he shouldn't be frank with Lizzie. The strands of anxiety are too much, each exacerbating the other and making George feel guilty and stupid. Lizzie saves him. We'll go to St. Paul in the morning. Sarah's got a sleepover at our house with Penelope tonight, anyway. We can go tomorrow. Did you tell the kids? She doesn't answer. Lizzie, do the kids know about my mom? The connection is lost. Maybe, he thinks, as he lurches into the revolving door of the tower on 57th Street, he really ought to get a new phone, a smaller digital one. This phone cost a fortune when he had ABC News pay for it four years ago. The same model now sells for $29. Had the thing really worked better in 1996, he wonders, or did it just feel more reliable and powerful when it was selling for 700 It was the smallest available back then but now seems as clunky and enormous as an 8-track tape cartridge. On the other hand, George, 6 foot 3 and 190, feels out of scale using the new 3-inch long 1.9-ounce models, like he's handling a piece of fragile dollhouse furniture or someone else's newborn. And if he keeps his big old model until 2009 or so, the revisionist pendulum will make it stylish again, like the towers on the Avenue of the Americas which leads George to an idea for Narcs, a B-story, for an episode this spring. The new deputy commissioner wants the detectives to start using tiny pocket-sized computers, a vice-cop intranet, and Jenny has to get the old guys cyber-ready. No, he thinks, no, make Jenny resist the computers as trendy bullshit. Hello, Narcs. Daisy Moore, the 26-year-old English receptionist, looks up, punches a button and says, parodying deference, Good morning, Mr. McTeer, sir. Being black as well as English, Daisy said to George when she was interviewing for the job, she would give him two for the price of one, convenient not only in the routine way that black receptionists are convenient in America, but also in pandering to Americans' anglophilia. Her second week, in a conversation with Daisy about her family, George used the phrase African-American. Crikey, George, she had said. I'm English. More than anything else that happens every day, and children aside, George loves coming to work. The arrival and the settling in. The wakeful, hopeful, testing one, two, three, four sameness of that first hour. He likes the sight of Iris making fresh pots of freshly ground, freshly roasted coffee, and his in-baskets filling tidily with fresh Nielsen packets, fresh daily varieties and Hollywood reporters, fresh network memos, fresh drafts of scripts. He gets a little high on the sense of readiness, even if that readiness is almost always also the imminence of frenzy, of third-act scenes that weren't ever fresh and aren't working now, of NBC executives quibbling knowingly and meaninglessly about beats and arcs and laying pipe in scripts they haven't read, of sulky guest stars and incremental ticks in the ratings. George takes pleasure in the anticipation of familiar problems.
All problems are either soluble, in which case he promptly solves them, or else insoluble, which is rare, and these he ignores. As he checks his email, he realizes that his mother's death has completely slipped his mind. Iris, his assistant, walks into his office, shiny brass watering can in hand, to water the huge flowering plants that don't annoy him quite enough to make her remove them. My mom died last night, Iris. What? In a car accident. Oh, George, oh my God. Yeah, it was pretty shocking. Lizzie is going to be really upset. Of course, that is terrible. Oh, my God. We need to fly to St. Paul for the funeral. Whatever I can do. We'll need reservations for tomorrow morning for the two of us and all three kids, nonstop to Minneapolis. A pause. Business class for the baby? She's six, Iris. That's a little large for laps. The price sensitivity, mooted by earning $16,575 a week, sometimes needs to be supplied artificially by Iris or Lizzie. Sometimes, coming from Iris, there's more point of view than necessary. Iris starts to cry and leaves her extremely shiny watering can on his desk, dripping onto the tiger maple as she rushes out. Almost immediately, she is back, now wearing a black sweater and sunglasses. George, she says, holding back sobs. Pick up for your ten o'clock. Morning. She's on a speakerphone. Why aren't you on the plane? Tran's doing me. I'm coming on... Ugh, the nine. Emily, I'm not sure I want to have a serious business discussion with one of us naked and greasy. So, nasty numbers. She means the instant overnight ratings, derived every night from a sample of TV viewers in big cities. The Nationals will drop. One of the reasons George enjoys being in business with Emily, in addition to the fact that she's an experienced showrunner and has actually created and produced her own network entertainment series, Girly, a Fox show about a hooker-turned-feminist lawyer, is her extreme economy of speech. Except when she gets excited, she speaks as though she were being charged by the word, double for verbs. Yeah, he says, the numbers are not what one would hope for. Since Narcs went on the air in October, five months ago, its average rating has been 7.2 and its average share 14, which means, as every American knows, that the show is watched in about 7 million households, which, at 10 o'clock on Saturday nights, amounts to 14% of the houses in which TVs are on. This past Saturday night, the rating was 7 and the share 12. George and Emily had vowed, the day Narx was picked up by Moe's for 13 episodes the previous May, never to obsess over ratings, certainly not the weekly overnights. But, of course, they can't help themselves. And their success has made them stew more. Do we think doing the real deal so early on was a strategic mistake? You know, maybe we raised the bar too high too soon. No, we got a 14, George. Ted Koppel said it transformed television. It wasn't praise. It wasn't not. But you do have to top it for May sweeps. Ordinarily, each 44-minute-long episode of Narcs is filmed and edited a few weeks before it's aired. Eight weeks ago, on the first night of the year, and of the decade, the century, the millennium, 
They broadcast an episode of Narcs called The Real Deal Live on four locations in Queens, the Bronx, and Manhattan, and on three sets on their soundstage. Doing a dramatic show live is not an original stunt, but still rare, and none had ever been so ambitious, was the word George and Emily used in interviews. The episode's B story was its unannounced climax, an actual bust of an actual ecstasy dealer on Ludlow Street who had been partying for 24 hours straight. Actual New York police detectives made the arrest, but the narc stars were in the shots with them, physically handling and delivering scripted lines to the bewildered suspect who was in handcuffs and bleeding from a small telegenic cut on his forehead. It was extremely cool television. That's really all George was trying for. Didn't the fact that they wrote the sensational cinema verite scene as the finale of the B story, not even of the main storyline, demonstrate their restraint? Editorial writers and legal scholars were unanimously appalled. Nearly everyone else was fascinated and amused and a little thrilled as well as a tiny bit appalled. Stories about the show appeared everywhere. Nightline devoted a whole show to the show. Koppel mentioned in his introduction that George was a respected former television journalist who used to work with us here at ABC News. It felt odd being splashed with drops of Ted Koppel's disapproval, but not awful. So, uh, thanks, Tran. The fuzzy, ambient sound of her office disappears as she picks up the receiver at last. Why are you so wormy? My mom died last night. He swivels away from the desk and puts his feet on the maple credenza and stares up toward the park, the snowy, astounding park. Why didn't you say? I guess I'm sort of numb. She was sick? She was, but it was a car accident. She was, you know, boom, it was instant. We're flying out in the morning. Well, seconds pass. So, Moe's 5.30? Emily asks. Ready? I think. Yesterday, Timothy said to me on the phone, and I quote, Let's literally lock and load, my mad dude. Iris's head is suddenly in his office. George, you're 10.30. Bye, Em, he says. See you this afternoon. Sorry, what? I said, how are your direct reports incented? The tan ectomorph in his late twenties, Chad, Chaz, is sitting in Lizzie's office questioning her. He is, he has said twice in the last twenty minutes, the senior relationship manager, business interface.